Joshua chapter 24. And uh, we've been looking at Joshua since May, so it's kind of sad to see the end of, uh, end of Joshua. I don't, don't know if I'll ever get a chance to preach this text again. It's been very enjoyable. But uh, let's, let's hear what the, Lord, what the Lord would say to us through Joshua this morning. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time, and then I brought you out to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you, but I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And he went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, to the leaders of Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand." And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities which you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of orchards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers, the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight sight, and preserved us all the way that we went among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we will serve the Lord, for he is our God." But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you, and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. 
And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in, in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the tabernacle tree that was in the sanctuary, or by the sanctuary of the Lord. Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he has spoken to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. But Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. After these things, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old, and they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath-Sirah, which is in the hill country of Ethraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, and had known all the work that the Lord had done for Israel. But as for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him in Gibeah, in the town of Phinehas, his son, which he had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, when we, when, they, when we come to the end of a book to actually um, have people who have, have been impacted by something come and share uh, something that the Lord has, has taught them. So, um, so I've asked Jean if she could actually come up and share. Good morning. Um, John has asked me to share something from uh, what I have learned from the book of Joshua, and I must say that I've never realized that there was so much good stuff in Joshua before, just kind of read it and that was it. <laughs> but uh, it's really taught me. Uh, one, of, one of the things I guess that really, I'll say, blew my mind was the fact that, that um, this lady, uh, Rahab, was a prostitute and she is in the line of Jesus, her descendants. And that just must be very encouraging for, for people, I think, that may, may have people in their background that have been less than worthy. And I, I, just, I just found that so exciting. And it really, I've read it before, and we studied it in our ladies' Bible study, but I don't know, it just seemed to really hit home the fact that here was this woman, a prostitute that, was in the, Jesus was in her uh, linear shoe, whatever. And so that, that was one of the, the things that I, and I think the other thing is that n no one is beyond uh, the love of God. No one, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, uh, no one is beyond uh, the, the love of God. And I think that that, and to be forgiven, no matter what you've done or who you are or, or whatnot. And those were definitely two of the things that really struck me as John has gone through the book of Joshua that I never really realized before. So that's, that's my little speech. <laughs> Thank you. That's beautiful. Thank you. Maybe not if I just 
with my penis like tumble down the stairs. Be very, be very, be very I've asked also if the, uh, the Griffiths uh, could come up and share something that the Lord has taught them. Gosh. I guess if it wasn't for Joshua, I wouldn't be standing here. Uh, the very first sermon where God says, and he promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. And this has been for me so huge. So um, the ability to face what life offers, what life throws at you, the insecurities, Joshua had a war to face. I have other things to face. And with this promise, I realized that I can actually have the courage and the strength, as he says I must have, uh, to face the days. Thanks. Joshua has reminded me that the Old Testament teaches, amongst other things, lots of other things, the doctrine of the church, uh, how the church should behave. Firstly, the leadership. If the, if the focus to follow the leadership are going to have to be riveted to the unalloyed word of God, not letting the book of law depart from your mouth, meditating on it day and night, Careful to do it. This must be a strong and courageous thing. How many times that little phrase came out in Joshua was just amazing. Be strong and very courageous. There must be this conviction so that the follow-through follow will be without fear. We, we live our lives under strange and weird circumstances. We've come across... Uh, from the other end of the globe, and we find a lot of things strange here. But we're able to understand something like that, and the fear somehow dissipates when we understand that God, in his word, gives us courage to face things. And it's quite necessary. We, we came a long way, but we didn't have to face the sort of things that Joshua had to face. Uh, some of the things that he had to face would turn my stomach. I, there was no way that I could stand and by and watch as men and, and women and boys and girls were slaughtered as the Israelites moved into the, the land that the Lord their God was giving them. I couldn't face that. Uh, I don't think I could face the issue of, of having to stand there where Achan and his family were standing.
He had sinned and he played fast and loose with God's explicit instructions. And that was the, the next thing that, that came through to me. That the people all had to be on board with Joshua. It wasn't just something which Joshua could do by himself. That the entire family of God had to be behind the word of God. God spoke through his leaders, through Joshua and Moses before him and others before that. But the people had to be of one mind with him. If there was any sin, it affected the whole body. And that's something which really has struck me. It has to be a growing conviction that we are blessed in God's grace with a pastor who takes God's words extremely seriously and who needs us all to be behind the word that he proclaims. And we need to stand, and borrow Jonathan Edwards' word, we need to stand in concert. I love that word. He brought it up in the prayer meeting the other evening, the other afternoon, where if the church were to be of one mind and were to begin to pray in concert and to have that unity of spirit, we have absolutely no idea what God could do. Just have a look at Joshua. That's what really struck me was when, when there was sin in the camp, one guy thought he could get away with it. But there's no ways that we can actually hide from the eye of God. His eye goes to and fro across the whole earth. And there's no place to hide. We must understand, we must be convinced that what we hear week after week, Wednesday after Wednesday, <clears throat> is not John's interpretation. If you think there's an interpretation coming through, then I challenge you to challenge John on that. It will serve you right when you do, because I know that John does his homework. And I have, on a number of occasions, had to go back to the scriptures and have a look at things and find that there was, in fact, such a weight of evidence in Scripture bearing out everything that John said that I must say again, it's not John that speaks from pulpit here. It's in fact God who speaks. He's raised up pastors and prophets and all the Old Testament people as well to lead us in this way. And we are to be behind that. I need to put my whole life and all my support to the work of the church, to the work of God's church. And like it says in Zephaniah 3, Verse 9, this we came across just, I think it was after the prayer meeting on Thursday. When, when the people act in this way, it says, Then will I purify the lips of the people, that all of them may call upon my name, or, sorry, upon the name of the Lord, and serve him, and I love this little phrase, shoulder to shoulder. There's a unity there which is anticipated. God anticipates that of his people. And I just want to be part of that in this church. I have been convinced by Joshua that if God is to work mightily in this church, as he did for the people under Joshua, that I need to put aside my agenda, any agenda I might have, any subconsciously that I might be even not sure what I'm thinking. And I need to work with my whole heart for his glory with every one of you and to anticipate and to hope and long for the fact that you do the same with me. There's a little verse in Acts 4.31 which I wanted to share as well, which I'll read for you. After they prayed, the place where they, were, they, where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. If we want to know something of what Joshua knew and the people knew about boldness, 
being of good courage, there it is. I've got to say that uh, after what, uh, um, what, what David just shared, I come into this pulpit with, with even more, um, by God's grace, uh, holy fear and, and holy trembling um, before what, what's going to happen here. And uh, I'm reminded of, um, of something that uh, the Puritan uh, Richard Baxter said repeatedly. He said, I preach as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. And so I realize that this, this might be the last time that I ever get to speak to you. I don't know what, what's, what's going to happen this afternoon or tomorrow. I, don't, I could walk out this door and, and get, get hit by a car and die and it could be all over. And the same could happen to each one of you. This may be the last time you hear God's word proclaimed. And so I think it's very important that we, that we wait on the Lord and allow the truths that the Lord would share to each heart this morning. Let God's truth wash over your heart. Examine yourself in the light of God's word and, and by, by God's grace and for his glory, respond to what you hear this morning. Let me pray. Holy God, we come before you with fear and trembling. For we know that you are a holy God. But Lord, for so many of us here, we can also come boldly into the throne room of grace because we have received grace through Jesus Christ. So I pray, Father, that you would help each one who, who knows you as Lord and Savior to respond to what you would say to them, that each heart would be changed as we reflect on what you did for Israel and what you have done for us and, Lord, what you will do for us. Lord, and we all know full well that there are those amongst us this morning who do not know you as Lord and Savior, who are still, as your word says, dead in their sins and trespasses. And Lord, we pray that by your Spirit, you would help them to respond, that you would make them alive. Lord, that you would give them a heart of repentance, that they may turn from dead works and serve the true and living God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. If you were about to share your last words with somebody, you'd want them to be poignant. You wouldn't want your last moments with your loved ones to be filled with, with talk about the weather or about sports. Now, throughout history, there have been countless quotations that have become known as famous last words, the last words that were on people's lips before they died and stood before the Lord. I want to ask you, have you ever thought about your last words? Have you ever thought about what would be on your heart and in your mind in those dying moments, in the last moments of your life? If, if 
by God's grace, you are, you are coherent and don't go suddenly out of this life and into the next. And I want to ask you, will what you believe give you confidence as you leave this life and enter the next? Will you be found faithful to the Lord? I was reminded of, uh, of the, the 17th century philosopher and skeptic Thomas Hobbes. And he was, was really infamous for, for, calling, uh, for calling into question the authority, inerrancy, and, and sufficiency, and inspiration of Scripture, and even was known to have referred to heaven as a delusion. So there, when, when Thomas Hobbes was on his deathbed, his last words were, I'm about to take my last voyage, a great leap in the dark. Imagine the despair of leaving this life and having no hope. No hope for eternity. Now let's think about somebody on the other side of the spectrum. We'll think about Polycarp. Now I realize probably many of you have not heard of Polycarp, but Polycarp was, was a disciple of the Apostle John. And Polycarp was actually... Uh, martyred in Smyrna in the year 155 AD. When Polycarp refused to, to denounce and recant of his faith in Jesus Christ, the Roman proconsul threatened that he, would be, that, that he would send wild beasts on Polycarp to tear him apart. And when Polycarp still refused to recant of his faith, the proconsul then threatened that he would be burned at the stake. And these are Polycarp's last words. Thou threatenest that fire which burneth for a season, and after a little while is quenched. For thou art ignorant of the fire of future judgment and eternal punishment, which is reserved for the, for the ungodly. But why delayest thou? Come, do what thou will. So Polycarp was found faithful, and he, went, he was immediately burned at the stake for his faith in Jesus Christ. Now I want us to fast forward about, about 1,850 years to September the 11th, 2001, to Todd Beamer, who was a passenger on United Flight 93. And many of you may have heard of Todd Beamer, but he was the one who actually uh, led the assault on the terrorists who had, who had hijacked the plane and, and were, were planning on flying the, that plane into, into Washington. But what many people don't know is that, that Todd Beamer was actually a committed Christian. And he and his wife were, were members of Princeton Alliance Church and were actively involved there and, and taught Sunday school there. But his last words as they were about to storm the cockpit were, were, well, let me back up to his second to last words. His second to last words were actually the Lord's Prayer that he recited with a, a phone operator. But his actual last words were, are you guys ready? Let's roll. Let's roll. Now those words, especially in the U.S., have come to symbolize heroism and self-sacrifice. But I want to ask this morning, 
what was it that gave Polycarp and they gave Todd Beamer confidence in the face of their death? What was the difference between Todd Beamer and Polycarp versus Thomas Hobbes? In our passage this morning, Joshua spoke what has become known as famous last words. This sermon that he, that he, he preaches here, and this really is a sermon that he preaches in Joshua 24, it's, it's virtually identical to the sermon that he also preached in Joshua 22 and Joshua 23. But these words that he said here in Joshua 24 are very poignant. We just sang them. He said in verse 15, Choose this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So again, as I'm standing here before you, I'm conscious of the fact that I am proclaiming to you the words of life. And that I am going to challenge you with the same command and the same challenge that Joshua gave to the people of Israel. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Now there's a band who sings a song that those who, who said that they won't choose still have made a choice. We're all making a choice to either serve God or serve the world, the flesh, and the devil. Every one of us are making that choice. But here at the end of his life, Joshua had something important to say, so he said it again and again and again. He was telling the people, he was telling Israel, and he said this in 22 and 23 as well. He was reminding them first of God's faithfulness. And he was reminding them of salvation history, of all the things that God had done for Israel. And then he said, based on that, based on God's faithfulness, he commanded them to love and obey God. He was saying to them, because God is faithful, I am commanding you to also be faithful. But here in Joshua 24, he actually takes it back a little bit further. He takes it back to, this, to the, the situation with Abraham. He goes back to Abraham before any human being had ever even thought of anything called Israel. And he reminds the people of their heritage. And in his commentary on Joshua, Francis Schaeffer calls it an ungodly heritage. The people of Israel boasted themselves in their heritage. But Joshua here in this passage reminds them, reminds them of from where they were ultimately called. In verses 2 and 3, Joshua says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, they served other gods. And then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. So he's telling the people to choose God because God had chosen Abraham. 
God says of Abraham in, in Genesis 18:19, "For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him." So by choosing Abraham, God was choosing a people for himself. He was choosing Abraham and his descendants, and ultimately Abraham's spiritual descendants. And that's us. Turn with me, please, in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Deuteronomy 7, 6. Moses says, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. But we need to ask here, why would God choose Israel? Look at verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Think about the history of Israel and think about the way that they grumbled and, and complained and rebelled against God almost immediately after they were, they'd, crossed, they'd crossed the Red Sea. Think about the way that they continually wanted to go back to the leeks and the garlic of Egypt. These people weren't any better than anybody else. They weren't wiser or more holy than anybody else. They weren't more mighty or more numerous than anybody else. God chose them because God chose them. God chose to set his love on them as an example of his sovereign grace and mercy. And for us here, 2,000 years after the cross, we understand far better than the people of Israel ever could have understood. We understand that God chose them in order to bring forth a son through them. And as we saw that that in him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And then in verses 5 to 13, Joshua reminds them of the way that God had delivered them out of slavery in Egypt, from the curse of Balaam, and from their enemies in Canaan. Think about that for a second. Brothers and sisters, we serve the same God. We serve the same God who took his people, Israel, out of Egypt. The same God who protected them from the curse of Balaam. And the same God who gave them the promised land and drove out their enemies from before them. So God freed Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And he freed you from slavery to sin. God protected Israel from the curse of Balaam. And he protected you from his own curse by sending his son to take the curse for you. God delivered Israel from her enemies in Canaan and gave them the land as an inheritance. 
God has delivered us from the world, the flesh, and the devil, and he is giving us his son. He's giving us God himself as his, as our inheritance. So yes, we serve the same God, but, but what we know on the other side of the cross is far more powerful and far more profound than anything that God had done for national Israel. So Joshua, Joshua wanted to remind the people what God had done, and we also need to remind ourselves of what God has done. We have to remind ourselves of what God has done in taking human flesh and living amongst his sinful creation and bearing the curse that was on us because of our sin. So often we make faith a matter of subjective feelings. Now, our feelings are important as a reflection of what is going on in our hearts. But we do not base our faith on our feelings. We base our faith on what God has done. We base our faith on God's holy promises in Scripture. So ask yourself, by what strength have you been delivered? If you are sitting here today as actually delivered as actually a born-again follower of Jesus Christ. Were you delivered by your strength? Not a chance. There was nothing that you could do to add to your salvation. It was done by Christ alone, faith alone. So we need to, to put off the sinful thinking and sinful behavior based on what Christ has done and put on faithful thinking and righteous behavior. So we put off faith because of what God has done. And we put, sorry, we put off fear and put on faith. We put off pride and we put on humility. We put off judgment and unforgiveness and we put on for and unforgiveness and put on forbearance and forgiveness we put off disobedience and we put on obedience so god chose israel out of his sovereign grace and mercy and love and chose them to be a people for himself, a holy people set apart to love him and to obey him. And the same is true for us. James Boyce explains that in reminding the people of their past, he was not rem reminding them of some great heritage or that they're being challenged to live up to, but rather the fact that they had been pagans, that they had been worshipers of false gods, before God had called them. That's what Jean reminded us this morning. That we were all sinful. We were all rebellious against God. We can all, to a degree, identify with Rahab. But now, because of what God had done for them, they were now to love him and to live for him. 
we also have that same ungodly heritage that Rahab had. We read in Romans 3, 10 to 12, that there is no one who is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless, for no one does good, not even one. In the Wednesday night Bible study, we're looking at, at, at Romans 1, and we've been discussing what it means to be called by God. And so as a, as a cross-reference, we're looking at Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. And, and I would encourage you this afternoon to sit down with Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 and do the exercise that we did on Wednesday night. Well, actually, that I'd given for homework. What I, what I encouraged everybody to do was to sit down with Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 and look at the before-after to see what they were and who they were before God made them alive in Christ Jesus. And then what they were afterwards. That we were dead in our sins and trespasses, and God made us alive in Christ Jesus. So, so do take some time this afternoon and sit down with that passage. When Joshua challenged the people to choose to serve God, he made it abundantly clear that he was choosing, that he and his house were going to serve the Lord. Now, now Joshua was, was revealing his character. Joshua had been steadfast the whole way through. Remember, he and Caleb alone had gone against the, the other ten spies and, and against the people of Israel out of faith and saying that in, in God's promise that he would give them the promised land. And likewise, he had been faithful in leading the people across the Jordan River. And he had been faithful in, in commanding the people to obey God and his commandments. And he had been faithful to obey what God had told him to do with the nation's that were there with the pagan nations, he followed it to the letter. He was even faithful in the way that he brought down justice on Achan and his family because of Achan's rebellion. So Joshua was here faithful at the end because he had been faithful all the way through. And again, Francis Schaeffer explains that, that Joshua chose, and he chose, and he chose, and he kept right on choosing. When we read in this passage, as for me and my house, we will, we will serve the Lord, the, the, the tense there doesn't really come across in English. But it's an ongoing choosing to serve the Lord. It's, it's serving the Lord past, present, and future. It's okay, to, it's, it's easy to say in the, the heat of the moment, you know, I'm going to serve the Lord as though it was just for that instant. But then when temptation comes, or, or as we read about in, in Matthew, about the, the, the cares of life and the deceitfulness of riches, they come in and choke out the word, and we wander away, and we, we are showing that we were never really choosing God in the first place. If there is a real choosing of God, if there is a real serving of God, it is an ongoing thing. And yes, we will stumble sometimes. 
But God's people will remain faithful to the end because God is faithful to them. We talked about this last week. Jesus will finish what he started. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. So are you this morning choosing God? Are you a God chooser? Would that characterize your life? Would your life be characterized by when you're faced with a temptation to sin or obedience to God? Is your life characterized by obedience to God? That reveals whether you really do love God, whether you really are his. So Joshua gives them the choice there in in verse 15. Now, the, the choice was actually multiple choice. Now, I know when I was... When I was in school, I loved multiple choice because I knew that, you know, if there's four, four potential answers, you at least had a 25% chance of getting it right. But here, Joshua gives them multiple choice, and the choice is between four different gods. They can choose either between the Babylonian gods that their forefathers had served on the other side of the Euphrates, or B, they could choose the Egyptian gods that they could serve that they had served while in slavery in Egypt, or C, the Canaanite gods of the people that they had just dispossessed from out of the promised land, or D, they could serve the one true God who had delivered them out of Egypt and given them the land of Canaan. Notice there was there was no E. There's no all of the above. It's either serve God or serve something else. There's no middle ground here. The same is true for us. You cannot serve God plus anything else. Moses said, what God said to Moses on the Ten Commandments, you shall not bow down and serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, jealousy we tend to think of as as a negative emotion. But remember that God is faithful to his own commands. God is faithful to his own commands. And God knows that if, if you are serving anything else apart from him, you are serving an idol. That God even worships himself. Have you thought about that? Because for God to do anything less than worship himself, that would be idolatry. And God never breaks his commandments. And so we are called to follow in God's footsteps. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did. He loved God wholly, and he loved God wholly. By that I mean he loved God holy in his entirety and with nothing else. There was no double-mindedness in Jesus. And he loved God in a perfect and holy way. So the people here knew the right answer. They knew what they were supposed to say. And, and they kind of gave the, the Sunday school answer here. They, they, they repeated back what, what Joshua had said to them. They, 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 said, they said, we're going to serve God too. And they even quoted back the the, the redemptive history of their deliverance out of Egypt. 
But Joshua knew what was really going on in their hearts. He said, you're not able to serve the Lord because he is a holy God. He knew that even as he had been faithful, so often the people had been unfaithful. And so he, he, he knew that and told them that if they forsook God, that God's jealousy and anger would be poured out on them. And that just as he had promised to do them good, he would then instead do them harm as a consequence to their disobedience. So we saw this last week, that that God's continued blessing was contingent on their continued obedience. And here Joshua told them to throw away the pagan gods. That really hit me as I was looking through one of the commentaries, that after all that had happened, after all that they had seen, they still had their, their, their pagan idols in their pockets. They were saying that we are going to serve God while they were still secretly holding on to the idols in their pockets. Let that be a lesson for us as well. Are you saying that you will serve God while still holding on to an idol in your pocket? We so easily hang on to those sins that were besetting us before we became Christians, or we so easily grab on to new idols and new things that we serve above God. So I want to command us, as Joshua commanded the people, to put away the false gods that are among you. But the people here were persistent. They said in verse 24, the Lord our God we will serve. So Joshua made a covenant with them. He, he wrote down the words in the book of the law and set up the seventh and final stone altar as a memorial. It was a reminder to them to be faithful to the Lord who had been so faithful to them. And with that, we come to the end of Joshua's time. With that, we finish the book of Joshua. And we, we think about the way that God has been faithful to his promises, the way, as, as Wen said, that God has promised that he will never leave us or forsake us. And so we want to let the, the, the truths of that wash over us afresh and, and let it help us to turn away from our sin and to be faithful to the God who's been faithful to us. And we also want to let it be a, a warning and a reminder for those who have not yet turned away from their sin, who are still God's enemies. You see, Israel's faithfulness didn't last very long. It didn't last very long. Read on in, in Judges to see what happened next. We see there that, that by the time the next generation rolled around, that the people had rejected God. The people had turned away from God and were turning idols. So God raised up enemies to punish them. Let that not be true of us. Let us do as Joshua did. Let us choose God 
and choose God and choose God and continue to choose God all the days of our lives. And Polycarp's and Todd Beamer's faithfulness when facing their death. So what is the difference between the faithlessness of one atheist and the faithfulness of believers who gave their lives for others and for the sake of the gospel. The difference between their faithless last words versus the faithful words of those who are faithful to Christ come because of another set of faithful last words. The faithful last words of Jesus Christ as he gave his, his life, he gave his spirit to the Father as a sacrifice for a sin when he said, it is finished. Jesus said, it is finished. The debt had been paid. The curse had been, had been taken away from his people. So it's because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ that we too can be faithful to the end. And it's because we know that those so-called last words of Jesus Christ weren't really his last words. We know that Jesus, when he, came, when he was resurrected from the dead, he said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the promise, the same promise that Wen mentioned this morning. That Jesus will never leave his people or forsake his people. Jesus' other so-called last words could have been in Acts 1.8, where he, where he said just before he was ascended to the Father, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So they could be confident that, that God had given them and he's given us his Holy Spirit to empower us. But they could also be confident because of the last recorded words of Jesus we have here in the Bible from Revelation 22:20, where Jesus said, Surely I am coming soon. So we can be faithful because Jesus has promised that he will return to gather his bride to himself. Beloved, we can be confident and we can be faithful. Because Jesus is coming back for us. And that's why we, we come together around this table. We come around this table to remember what God has done for us. And we come around this table to remember what God will do for us upon his return. So I want to call you. And I want to command you with the same words that Joshua gave to the people of Israel. 
choose you this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Ask Brother Ed to pray for the bread. Heavenly Father, again, we do praise you and thank you for your plan of salvation that uh, you committed to us even back in Genesis, Lord, that you would send a Savior to take away our sins. And Father God, we thank you especially that Jesus was willing to leave his heavenly throne and take on a human body and come and live among us and suffer and die for my sins, Lord. And Father, as we gather around this table, we do it to Jesus in response to Jesus' command to do it in memory of him. Again, we thank you, Lord Jesus. We praise you. Amen. Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Ask Pastor Jean to pray for the cup. Father, we come before you once again as we look to the cross of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for that time when Christ came into the world to seek and to save each one who was lost. And having found us, brought us to you, and so we would ever give you much praise this morning. And we can thank you, Father, for the precious blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from every sin. And so we come rejoicing this morning, knowing that we've been saved, that we've been cleansed, and that we've been called. So bless us now, Lord, in your presence, even this moment of time, as we remember the blood was shed for each one who put our trust in you. Bless us even now, for pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray one more time together before we sing. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your precious blood. Lord, not a drop of your blood was wasted. Lord, your sacrifice was the perfect sacrifice. Lord, as, as was said earlier, part of your plan from the beginning. So Lord, we thank you for your perfect plan because in your plan we have found life. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us in the life that we have in you to die to our sin and live for you. For we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.